When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade. I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's PK and Puyol or PK and Mascherano or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine, perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy, all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content. Everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. Welcome to episode 257 of the Barcelona Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Dan Hilton, and Frances is still continuing to get some much-deserved time away. But today, I am joined by Rory Barlow of La Liga Lowdown to help me, and I hope us help us get a better picture of the Liga title race that is probably over, but still, we have a ton to talk about, including the future of Ronald Koeman. Rory, welcome to the show. Yeah, delighted to be on, Dan. I'm, I'm very happy to be here, and uh, there's plenty, plenty to talk about with this very, very strange La Liga race. Yeah, and Rudy is helping me after refining his La Liga skills. He did write for BarcaBlog.com, if that name does seem familiar for some of our podcast listeners. But I guess you got the promotion up to the Liga lowdown. You get to write about everybody now, not just Barcelona. And in the recent weeks, of course, Barcelona were fun to write about for about three to four months. And then about the last seven matches, it hasn't been so fun to write about them. And since the last time we spoke on the podcast, it's been two matches, Atletico Madrid and Levante, when the Liga went from... It's going to be harder now with that draw after the Liga to, well, with that loss of Levante. I mean, that draw with Levante, it doesn't look so good. So let's start with Atletico Madrid. And the two big talking points from this match, I think, obviously, are the stakes in the Liga. But where do you stand, Rory, on the idea of Ronald Koeman and those big matches and the results in the big matches this year, if you will? I think what for me really stood out about this Atleti game was that it was the last chance that they had to sort of flip that narrative and go into the new season with a real confidence that they could compete on the sort of biggest stage. And even Atleti and Real Madrid, I don't think they are 
vintage vintage versions of of those teams and so to not be able to take more more points off those teams i think it really really disappointing and kuman the mental work he's done with this side has been really impressive for me i think in terms of where they were when he took over you obviously have to give him plenty of credit for that but at the same time if you can only take it so far then does he have a place at barcelona i'm sure we'll come on to that later but oh, yeah <laughs> you can't it's only so good winning against elche and granada who are difficult teams to beat and granada have done really well this season but you won't win anything without competing against the big teams except the copa del rey this year Right, in the Copa del Rey, those were the big matches, the second leg against Sevilla that had to be overturned, and then, of course, the final, it was a trouncing of Athletic Club. Uh, yeah, and against the two Madrid giants, if you will, Barca got one point from those four matches against Athletic and Real Madrid, and that is the worst result for the two Madrid giants in a season since the 1964-65 season, when Barca lost all four of those matches. And a reminder, too, that those mid-60s, when Alfredo De Stefano was basically at his peak at Real Madrid. I mean, he was a little bit older at that time. But yeah, Real Madrid was dominating Spain, and there was really nothing Barcelona could do. That was part of their dark, the dark ages. Kubala had just left, and it was 10 more years before Johan Cruyff was to arrive. And so, yeah, those are some dark days, and that was the last time that it was this bad against the two Madrid teams. And that is surely why Barcelona... I, I don't know, though. I, I was about to say that surely why Barcelona didn't win League of Trophy, but that's not true, because we know that the real truth is those points that were dropped against Granada, those points that were dropped against Cadiz, the points that were dropped in the first half of the season, even the first leg against Atletico Madrid, and that mistake by Ter Stegen at the back was why Carrasco got the one goal, and that winds up proving to be the difference there. And it was it was small individual mistakes, and I think from Atletico Madrid, I was a bit positive about some of the things that did work defensively. So I know we talked about the zero, the, the zero on, the, on the other side of the score sheet, but offensively, Barcelona in the new year have been really good, and it's been important the way that the Messi and Griezmann partnership has worked out, and Dembele getting back to full fitness, having the best year of his Barcelona career, it must be said. And at halftime, in particular, that decision to insert Araujo and fortify the right side, because who could have expected a Sergio Busquets injury? That was a, a bad thing to see, and Barcelona not the same without him. Sure, because he has been in fine form. As much as Barca have been dropping points, Sergio Busquets has had a renaissance. I think he's been the best Busquets in two, three years. The 3 5 2 have really supported him. That said, when he goes out, 18 year old Ies Mariba comes in, and now you have a right side of Mingetha, Ies Mariba, and Dest. And there just isn't enough game time there. And this is where inexperience comes to play. Not in pushing forward, but in covering those passing lanes for Atletico Madrid, where it, there were starting to be wrinkles, there were starting to be holes. Carrasco was having a bit more space. So the change for Araujo, who is only 21 himself, winds up fortifying that thing. And I think Barcelona have a reason to be proud of not, again, the zero for them, but the zero on the other side. Atletico Madrid were not able to break through because Barcelona were the better defensive side. 14 interceptions, 20 tackles made, 400 passes by Atletico Madrid, and Barcelona were able to weather it all. So I do come out largely negative because of the result, but the positive the positive note here is that Barca's defense was still very good against Atletico Madrid. Yeah, I'd, I'd wholeheartedly agree with you there. And I think, although Busquets' absence was huge, I think that really threw the team off Kiltran. And, and you saw Atleti's best sort of period of the game come right after he went off. And Elisha, as good as he is, as much potential as he has, he's still very young. He, like Mingetha and Araujo, doesn't have a huge amount of game time under his belt. I think for me, if I was to look at the best performances under Koeman and you talk about Sevilla and Granada, those games where they managed to really press the other team, 
that was where I was most disappointed because I think the legs to a degree have gone on this side and particularly in midfield Pedri keeps coming off because he doesn't have anything left in those legs and I think that press is where Barcelona when they played in that second leg against PSG when they played against Sevilla that was where they really looked at their best again where you really thought something is building here something that can be taken on into the future and without that press that's where Barcelona failed to really dominate the game against Atleti for me and although their defending deep was a little bit better I thought that was the part of uh, Barcelona's game which perhaps prevented them from really taking the game to Atleti and I think again I said I was most disappointed with the press but also I was disappointed with the lack of urgency and I think part of that was relinquishing protagonism to Atleti during the game. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think Barcelona had a, a proper game plan. They were good against Marcos Llorente. They were good against Coque. They did their homework and cut those guys off the ball. And I think even Carrasco wasn't as dangerous as he could have been. But on the other side, you're right. That pragmatism that, that was necessary to find those pockets of space, it just wasn't there. And it's a question of how much you put on, in the, spec, in the second half in particular, how much you put on tired legs, how much you put on some inexperience. Because at the top level and those big matches, when you're playing with 18-year-olds and 20-year-olds and 21-year-olds, it's hard to notice the two to three steps or the, the wrong spacing or the, the cut that isn't made at the exact right moment, at the exact right time. And we're noticing that it's not even the way the Barcelona play, but for Antoine Griezmann, it's now taken him almost two full seasons to be in those spots, to make those right runs exactly when he needs to make them. So while uh, Elas Mariba, I think... A section of the fan base, and we're going to talk about the midfield later. I, I want to put a pin on that because I think that involves... You brought up a good point about the tired legs, and I, we're going to cover that in the Kuman section. All that said, about Ies Moriba, I've been, again, very complimentary of him. He's been better than he was even with Barca B, and surely in Barca B, he looked like he was... Last year, he was 17, playing for Barca B in, their, in that first season at that level, and he looked a bit like he was out of his depth. And then this season, he winds up getting the promotion to the first team. And I actually thought he looked better than he did last year when he was 17 with Barca B. And he was better this year with Barca B to start this year. But yeah, he's still just 18 years old. There's still so much to learn. But the, the percentage of aerial duels that he wins now, that is something that usually comes with experience and something that isn't going to change. Uh, his offensive positioning, his offensive understanding of how quickly to move the ball, he doesn't take too many touches. Those are all instinct. That is all things that is going to carry with him throughout his career. And I think the things that are missing in his game are things to be learned. And that is a good, that's a good thing. So the questions are not, I think, of Ias Mariba. It's what to, when is he playing? What circumstances is Kuman deciding that that's the time to put on this youngster? So I think the fan base that is turning on him, I just want to make sure that we stop and understand what he needs to learn and where the gaps in his game are. And again, the reasons he's 18 years old. But also understand what he does well and why he, I, I still believe this, it's not just overhyped, I do believe he's going to be a, fan, a phenomenal first team player for a long, long time because of the things that he already does understand and do well instinctively. He's just a high level player. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that as well. And as much as I said, Elish wasn't a replacement for Busquets, like you said, he's 18 and the question is more about Kumin and how you sort of make up that absence of Busquets, even... Even De Jong, as good as De Jong is. De Jong's been, for me, maybe Barcelona's best player this calendar year, along with Messi, of course. He's not, he can't quite do the same things that Busquets does. That circulation of the ball isn't as quick, it isn't as fluid. And yeah, I, I think they just miss that so much. And as, as much as Elish was perhaps the only option that Koeman saw viable, because we know he doesn't like Pooch, we know that he's 
not a Pjanic fan. I don't think many Barcelona fans are at this point. But I think that sort of disorganisation really hurt them. Elisha, as you say, I think he's got all the potential in the world to dominate midfields over the course of the next 10 years in Europe. But yeah, I think the question has to come back to Kuman in that sense as to like where you put him on and what you want from him. Because if you take De Jong out of that position where he is best, which is with a bit more freedom to go forward, to drive, I maybe would have put Elish in Busquets' position because although mm. it's a lot of responsibility, I think you take some of the creative responsibility off him and you maybe sort of unclog that midfield where Barcelona found it so difficult to find ultimately Messi in space which is what wins you the game yeah actually I want to take this even a step further with with this insanity uh, what does the internet call it the galaxy brain right yeah I, I think that for me it was actually what Barcelona were missing when Busquets went was left was not even Busquets's understanding of the game and, and controlling that game it was you're losing that extra body in the box with that with for those De Young runs, and we saw without that body that Ish Moriba isn't going to make those runs. Uh, didn't necessarily make those runs. He was playing a, a little more underneath Messi, if you will. So I actually, in that circumstance, really would have blown it up. I would have put Pedri as the pivot. We've seen him as a pivot before. He does that defensive job, uh, and I think what that game was asking for, Atletico Madrid allowed Barca to have the ball. Again, what Pedri can do to dictate a game, I think he does enough of what Busquets was asked to do in that match in particular. It wasn't necessarily that Busquets, unlike other matches like against, again, Cadiz, where, where that didn't really work out in one of Busquets' poor matches this year, or the first, as you mentioned, the first match against Granada, that 4 nothing domination, when Busquets was unbelievable. I thought that was his best game of the year coming back, and just as Barcelona was starting to play well, too. And the way that Busquets dictates the match, Atletico Madrid weren't really choosing for him to do that. They were honestly actually trying to mark him out of that match. There was a lot of man-marking Busquets at that time. And throwing Pedri back there, I think Pedri has, even, especially in the first half. Now, when he comes out of the game in the second half, questions could be asked there. But I think at that point, you've already put yourself up one nothing because Barca were buzzing. They were ready for that goal. There just was one man short in that box with De Jong not making those runs. So I actually think that I would have done it differently. I, I would have put Pedri as the pivot, pivot, Yes, Moriba as the left interior, and De Jong as the right interior to, to keep that spot. And I thought Griezmann or Messi or De Jong would eventually have, have broken through because they were finding space in the first, what, 15, 20 minutes of that match before, before he gets hurt, that being Busquets. So, yeah, and I think for Levante, we're bringing up some of the, uh, the same ideas about tired legs and things like that. But for Levante... It's obviously more disappointing because it's not the level of Atletico Madrid. No disrespect to Levante, but they were 14th in the league table. They're pretty much already safe. So they, not say they had less to play for, but all they were doing was playing spoiler. And Barcelona, I think you're, the sense of urgency you spoke about, it was much more prevalent against Levante than uh, against Atletico Madrid. But unfortunately, I was disappointed because in that first half, not only are they up to nothing, but the movement of Dembele, De Jong, and Pedri when they had their legs, I thought Koeman got it right. I, I, Barcelona dominated the first, what, 10 to 15 minutes of that match, and Levante barely sniffed anything, and Barcelona in the first half were able to go up 2 nothing. And then I don't want to lead you at all with, with your answer here, but Araujo coming off for Sergio Roberto at halftime after picking up that knock, well, everything changed, and unfortunately the only change was Sergio Roberto. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Roberto. Yeah, I think the Sergio Roberto debate is interesting. Personally, I don't like to criticize him too much this season because I think he's played... It's 190 minutes since November. So he, yeah. he's not match fit. He's not in rhythm. And he, I don't think you can really expect him to, certainly beforehand when he was playing in a 3-5-2 or 5-3-2, whatever you'd like to call it, when he was playing that right wing back spot, he's never played that before. Similarly, if you're going to put him sort of as a right-sided centre half, never really played that before. So I think the Sergio Roberto criticism is perhaps over the top and it comes from a want of a scapegoat I do believe that everything changed and I also think it was the wrong change to put him in there but I I don't want to sort of pin this blame because I think even towards the end of that first half you saw Barcelona standing off Levante to a really unacceptable degree of like two three yards of space which even at five aside when I'm playing with my pals you don't give people that amount of space because they're going to hurt you. And these are professional footballers and Levante have some good attackers. They're, they're on a poor run of form, but yeah, I, I, I couldn't believe my eyes almost would, especially in that second half, we've seen how much space Levante had to play. There was huge gaps in the midfield and whether you want to put that down to mental tiredness, loss of actual physical legs or sort of change in shape or, or players, I, just, I, I think it was a team mentality thing more than Sergio Roberto's entry, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, he did get beat 1v1 by Monero on the header, sure, but that cross comes off. And then in the second one, I mean, that's just Messi giving the ball away in midfield. And Roberto and Pique weren't really out of position. They were in the position they were in as the ball was progressing up the field. Uh, then Messi giving the ball away. So, yeah, I, I, it's not to make excuses for Roberto, but you're right. Roberto has only played 20 matches all season long, 11 at right back. And the reason why we say right back is remember most of his game matches came when Barca was still playing that 4-2-3-1. He's played five matches at right midfield or that wing back spot, two in the center of the park and two at center back, which is two too many at center back because Sergio Roberto doesn't fit what he does. He's not, he doesn't belong in that 3-5-2. And I think that's a question too about when you change formation, that 3-5-2 has really fit Busquets. It has really fit, and there's there's been a place that De Jong has found. Actually, whether he was playing libero or as that, that box eight, De Jong has been good in both positions. It's bought the best out of the Messi-Griezmann partnership. Dembele has a space out wide. It's bought the best out of Dest out wide. Alba is thriving again on that right side, so uh, the left side. So that 3-5-2 supports the greatest number of players. And that's what I think Kuman was correct to take this utilitarian approach where whatever is best for the most players is the formation you have to use. And as I, as we were talking about for even going back to Pjanic, Pjanic doesn't truly fit in this 3-5-2. His skill set has never really fit that, especially at his age too. He's not so much the interior he was at Roma and he's not so, and he can't really be that one as the pivot. Uh, well, he didn't really do that for Juventus. It was more of a, a combination p- uh, double pivot. And so Pjanic doesn't really fit there either. And that's why I don't think you see him. So, in this formation, I think Roberto 
only fits as a midfielder. And we've seen him when I think he's been in his best this year with the two times when he did come in as that interior, uh, but not even as a starter. So now you're talking about a player that in this 3-5-2 system, the only way to get the best out of him or the only where the only place where he is a reasonable first option, if you will, is coming off the bench to be the backup for Pedri or for De Jong as one of the interiors. But again, it's quite damning for him and PK that Barca have lost once in the Liga with him out and that uh, PK very similar dropping a total of nine points in 21 matches. Since Roberto returned, that's two losses and 10 points dropped in seven matches. Uh, yeah, and it does overlap a ton with PK too. But yeah, that's not good. It's, it's not a good number. And you can't bit pin it on those two, but there must be something said of results dipping when two of your captains returned. And I don't, I don't think that has to do with the locker room. I, I don't know if it has to do with age or focus or... Uh, the rhythm and rhyme of the game. I'm, I'm not sure what that is. I'm not sure if it's that Jordi Alba takes more responsibility when PK isn't behind him or, or what it is. But yeah, I, I, what do you make of those stats, Rory? It's, it is puzzling. Again, it's not about those individual players, but something about the team dynamic. I, I think it is It's certainly damning, as you say. And I think part of it you can put down to match fitness. For me, I wonder if it's sort of a catch-22 that Kuman was caught in, in the sense that since... Okay, they started off 4-3-3 in January, but since about January, he's more or less played the same 11, 12, 13 players swapping Griezmann and Dembélé out. And so if you're going to play those players solidly, you might get the best results and you might get yourself back into the title race, which they did, and very nearly... So they came very close to winning this title, and let's let's not be about the bush. It's not a title that they should have been winning. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you do play those players solidly for sort of two, three months, you might get the best out of those players. But as soon as you have to make those changes, as soon as you have to swap in people, the likes of Trincao, we've seen him completely fall off in the last sort of month and lose game time. Then you saw again Elish coming in against Atleti and you had no sign of Pooch, Pjanic, Robert. There was no other options. And so as soon as you have to make any changes to that system, if you are going to play solidly one sort of 11 or 12 11 or 12 players in that period of time, you're going to cause yourself problems down the line. And I think Koeman, at, at the stage he was at, I can totally understand and justify him playing his best 11 every week, trying to win games, because I think in January, nobody would have seen him keeping his job past this season. And now it's it's a real debate. Yeah, we're, we're, we're almost there. We're about to go do the, the Koeman segment. Uh, I, I want to finish up Levante. Uh, because I, I think that the narrative of Levante is different if Barcelona wins 2 nothing or wins that match 3 nothing like they probably should have. And the frustrating part, I think the most frustrating part, was the way the three goals happened. Barcelona were the better team. They were the dominant team. And the first goal, of course, Roberto getting beat with the header. Second goal, the Messi giveaway. And you have to give credit to your opponents, too. I watched the, the replay. It, at first, yes, the Messi giveaway is bad. But at first, it looked like Barcelona were, were making mistakes and out of defensive positioning. But Jose Morales is one of the best non-big team players in the Liga. He's the captain of Levante. He scored double-digit goals this year. You have to give credit to the opposition sometimes. And the move he had where he picks up the ball combines with Marty, who was pretty quiet that whole match, and delivers on a pretty nice strike as well to beat Ter Stegen. Again, I, I want to credit the opposition when they deserve that credit, but Messi, the giveaway is, is the part that's unacceptable. On the third goal, Des slips. Then when he gets up, he has bad positioning. He doesn't recover properly. And PK, not only does he get beat at the near post by Lyon, but Ter Stegen also doesn't save it. And people asking questions of Ter Stegen, where in these matches that Barcelona truly need, has he come up big? I think he's had... He's had a down season. Ter Stegen has not been at his best either. 
PK has not been at his best either. Des is still... I'm not even sure if that's learning. On that third goal, he slips, and that's all it is. He slipped. Dembele almost gave up the first goal of the game when he chested it down into the path of Tonio. And if Tonio had a little more attacking acumen on it, then he could have made some damage. But uh, yeah, a mistake by Dembele in that instance. But mistakes do happen, even at the top level. Players make mistakes, but it's whether or not the other team capitalize on them. That said, Levante scored three of the four shots that they had on target. That's the part I think that's unacceptable, right? Yeah, it's not great. And as much as you can, when you analyze goals, it's very easy to put it down to individual mistakes. But that's that's part of coaching. That's part of training your team up is to make sure that they don't make those mistakes because we've seen it happen all season. And I think, not to return back to the to the theme we were talking about, but you you were saying how that three five two really suits Busquets. And I think at this stage of his career, it's, it is the best formation for him 100%. But it really suits that Barcelona team when they can do that press and perhaps we'll come on to it in a wee minute. But when when they're not pressing high up, Barcelona have never really suited defending deep. And as soon as you ask them to do that, they're going to concede goals. Even right back to the Pep Guardiola days, you never really saw them defending deep because they knew that they couldn't really do it. That's yeah. why they pressed so high. They didn't have the players to sit sit back and welcome pressure onto them. And so whenever you ask this team to do that, which is a much worse team, they're going to concede goals. And that's, I think if you if you go back and look at all the sort of big struggling defeats, some of them will be counterattacks. Some of them will be this Barcelona team getting caught on the break. But a lot of them, particularly PSG, they were sat in their own half and Bayern Munich sat in their own half. Again, it's when they, they try and do things that they aren't very good at, when they don't dominate the midfield, that's when Barcelona struggle most. And I, th- I think that's that's almost the sort of the macro key to this Barcelona side is you still need domination of the midfield to get the best out of this team. It is funny you say that because when we define the undefinable Barca way that exists, uh, going back to the 3-4-3 that Cruyff played, it was all about pressure. It wasn't about sitting deep. And that team struggled when they had to sit deep or played those kind of sides. And the same thing, as you said, can be said of Guardiola's team. And it's funny because the Barca Femini, I think, at the moment, and uh, why we haven't spoken about them and why we won't speak about them today, tomorrow there is planned in the works. There is something special about a preview. So you're going to have a whole show for a preview on the Barca Femini against Chelsea and that Champions League final. But yeah, it's funny to me that the Barca Femini are the best example, I think, of a team that plays the Barca way, if you will. And the Barca Femini are at their worst. The only real weakness at this team that was a plus 123 goal differential in the league, their only real issues are when they're trying to sit back or when they're in second gear. They have to be putting the pressure on. They have to always be on the gas. And that's when the Barca Femini succeeds. And I think when you talk about the Barca way, for better or worse, that is part of the Barca way. That Barca are the superior technical team. They, not even in fitness, because fitness is not, it's just, amalgamous term that doesn't really mean it means whatever you need it to mean but Barcelona is a team that because of their technical ability they usually have the legs at the end of the game because the ball has done the work the opposition has to use their legs and the ball Barcelona if you're doing it properly is using the ball to 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 wear down your opposition and that's why the second half fall-offs against Gaddafi before a Clasico against Granada against Levante are most frustrating because it feels it feels avoidable because of what Barcelona, being the superior team with the ball, should be doing to their opposition in the second half. And yeah, let's do the Kuman thing now, because let's do the Kuman thing in the midfield. It's tired legs. That's what you said. I mean, Busquets, De Young Pedri 
are the three starters. Don't get that twisted. They are the three starters. At this point in the season, they should be starting every single match and at least going 60 minutes if, if they can't. And playing Ricky Pooj in the 85th minute was, I think it was almost admitting fault this time around. That match needed something. It needed somebody to break through that very compact 4-4-2 that Levante was playing, and that player came too late. And I know we have a lot of Pooj stands, and Frances is tired of talking about Ricky Pooj, but I think it's, it's important now through the lens of the fact that the reason why we keep bringing up Pooj, if Pjanic doesn't fit the system and is basically going to be leaving Barcelona in the summer anyway because he only came for financial reasons in a swap for Arthur. He never really was what not only what the new manager in Koeman wanted, but it was decided before the manager came in and it was never really going to fit. Personalities as well. Pianos thinks he's a starter and he's not. So, I mean, we've seen Koeman in the past. If you have a player like that, that it doesn't gel in terms of what the player wants and what the manager wants, that player doesn't play. And that's kind of what we see from Koeman. That's why Pianos isn't playing. That means that you have Ies Moriba being really the only backup midfielder, and Roberto was gone all season. Carlos Alenia went out on loan, and Mateus Fernandez is just sitting there in the stands eat, <laughs> eating a hot dog, you know? And then you have in the B team, Nico Gonzalez has been so important to Garcia Pimienta, but he renewed today, and he, it looks like he's being tabbed at least to be a potential successor to Sergio Busquets, and he's been fantastic when he was moved back to that position in recent weeks, but that's another gamble you have to take. That's another young player that you have to take a gamble on. But the reason we argue about Puj is that Busquets, De Jong, and Pedri, they play all the time, and now you're only really bringing in Ies Mariba or you're changing the formation to suit those tired legs in midfield. So there had to be better rotation. It wasn't about Puj starting. It was about Puj coming in in the 60th minute much more often letting Pedri rest. I mean, it's simple game management and, 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 and yeah, and player management. Um, and I, I think we've seen that the problem that Ronald Koeman as a coach and a manager, and you can almost have definition, different definitions for those. He's able to manage a locker room. He's able to manage an entire team, but his failings happened was when the issues with him being a manager, as in he doesn't rotate enough. He can be stubborn at times with things, even though he's flexible at others. And yet, because he's not using enough of that bench long enough, then the legs get tired. Even when he got the tactics right, the legs get tired because either it's he's, he's done his job tactics-wise being a good coach, and the manager side of it lets him down, or he's done his job getting the locker room, changing the formation, and getting everybody to buy in, but his second half subs or something happened in the, in the tactics of the game that he just didn't get right. So it seemed like he's always missing one part of that equation. Yeah, and I think you say Francesca's tired of talking about Ricky Pooch. I think everyone, even the Pooch fans, are tired of the Pooch discussion. But it's not about Ricky Pooch per se. It's just about another midfielder. And how 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 much of your sort of season are you willing to gamble on sort of personal differences, so to speak? Because I mean, for me, it's clear that Kuman and Pooch don't see eye to eye. And so, yeah, how how much of your season are you willing to gamble on that? And I think. When you come into a larger discussion about Kuman and his continuity, the thing that hurts him most is not what the results have been or how this Barcelona team has played. I think, as I say, mentality-wise, this team is better if still lacking in some key areas. It's the fact that the errors that Kuman makes are always so sort of glaring or obvious to even sort of the casual observer that it's hard to understand how he can sort of continue managing this team when those errors are so so obvious. And so how do you fix a team? You might get sort of the tiny details, right? You might get playing Dembele at nine against Sevilla, right? And that completely worked, completely destroyed Sevilla. 
But if you can't sort of fix the really key things, then how are you to progress in this team? And frankly, I think that's where Laporta maybe has his doubts is because when he he certainly started running for president, there's no way that Kumin would have been his candidate, regardless of what he says in public. And I, I think sort of those key glaring er, errors, he showed a lot of flexibility in 2021. I'll give him that. He showed a lot more flexibility than I thought that he was going to show. But yeah, it's still those sort of glaring key issues that he refuses to budge on. And that's where his problems arise from for me. I think that Kules are actually being, uh, I have to give Kules a compliment on this, that of course you're always going to find a rational fan out there, but I think most fans, Kules have understood the nuance in the job that Kuman has done well and why he may not be the man for the future. And I think we got to, I have to avoid, and I try my best to avoid what general consensus is and go along that line. But I think there's a reason why general consensus is that he was actually the right man for this position at this moment. He was the right man for the job, but he might be the wrong man moving forward. Because I, it must be said, this Kuman is different from the one way back in his Ajax days. And it's interesting to me too that Kuman is now, he's been a manager for more than 20 years. So it's much more than a lot of the contemporaries that we think of for Barcelona, whether it was Guardiola, of course that was a first job or at the top level, or Luis Enrique, where it wasn't his first job, but surely this, the, the time at Celta de Vigo was not a lifetime. I mean, he would he worked his way up Celta de Vigo. I mean, even the likes of, I mean, Tata Martino had been around for a long time and it was certainly a big step up for him. Uh, and then Ernesto Valverde, even him, it was really just athletic club. And then he hadn't been managing that, that, that long. But for Kuman, he's been around again for 20 years. He's had a lot of different stops and a lot of different experiences. And this Kuman is much more refined than the one we saw at Ajax or we talk about the managerial side of things, the way he's handled relationships as opposed to what he did at Valencia. And I mean, obviously you can ask Real Betis, who's Joaquin, what he thinks of Kuman in his time at Valencia. And same thing with Feyenoord or Southampton, where something always seemed to go wrong at all of those different stops on either the coaching side of things and then the managerial side of things. He would make his tactic mistakes and then he would lose the locker room. But I think he hasn't lost this locker room. And the same thing can be said of Everton or the Netherlands national team job. He's much more flexible now, and I think that has actually helped him keep the stars and the captains of these teams. But even though he's flexible, Kules admit that, as we've been talking about, he's still stubborn. There's, a, there, there's ways that he still finds ways to be both flexible and stubborn. And uh, as, as, again, Toll Soccer Show's Daryl Grove, uh, I, I, he always said that things can be two things, and, and that's what they say. And that's why when he was hired... I, I titled the video. I made a YouTube video chronicling his history as a, as a as a manager, and I called it Ronald Koeman, the roller coaster manager, for a reason. This is what Ronald Koeman is. This is what he's been for 20 years. He is a roller coaster. He's the right man and the wrong man. He's flexible and he's stubborn. He both trusts in youth and also doesn't trust in certain youth and holds personal vendettas. He does all of those things all at the same time. And now in his career as a manager, he's willing to change the formation to suit his players but he doesn't seem to have enough players or the trust in enough players to make sure that flexibility is seen and comes to full fruition. And the other thing, not to make excuses for him, but the situation that he walked into with Messi, the fact that he was basically, uh, he's able to change public, whether Messi leaves or not, public opinion has changed that if this is Messi's final hurrah, it was the right way to go out. That Messi went out being the captain of Barcelona, being the man giving the rah-rah speeches. He didn't leave his team out in the dark. He groomed this next generation and almost had a transition period. That's why we keep saying transition. But that's why the transition is, is that you have all these young players and Messi is 
in a sense, on his way out, whether it's this year or next year, whenever it may be. Kuman also didn't have Fati for almost the entire season, who was the best player for Barcelona for the first two months of the year. And Kuman also hasn't got a single transfer window because Barcelona can't afford anybody. So do you, I mean, so the, the, those who say that maybe he should get another chance, I think there's an argument for it, that he hasn't had a transfer window. He hasn't had Ansu Fati. He hasn't really had an off season to institute that 3-5-2 and make it work for everybody and get the players and bring in players that will fit that system. So I understand the argument as to why You'd want to give him a second opportunity, but then you look at the 20 years of his managerial career so far, and you go, well, every time somebody gave him a second shot or a second season, it doesn't really work. So do you need to bring in a manager? And this happens a lot. I I talk about the NBA. I'm not sure how much you watch of the NBA, Rory, but so often, look at the Brooklyn Nets here, right? That Kenny Atkinson was the guy who built the culture. He was the one who built the, the young upstart Nets when they were back in the playoffs and they put those bad years behind them. But he wasn't the man to take them into that stratosphere. The same thing can be said of the 76ers. You needed Doc Rivers, who is a championship caliber coach, to come in with an already almost complete project and take that over the edge. The same thing. Steve Nash might be a first-year head coach, but you needed that big, big figure to come in and take it over the edge. And Ronald Koeman's a big figure, but he's not really a big figure in the managerial sphere. He's a mid-table, or he's basically just underneath that upper crust as a manager. Tactically, he's just proven over and over again he's just right there, but he's not one of those top, top managers to turn Barcelona into that next that, that next level. So the question is, is next year another, is that part two of the transition season before that other guy comes in to bring Barcelona back to glory? Or is it time already for Kuman to say, hey, thank you so much for what you did, but we need this guy to take Barcelona next season. They're ready to go back to the top of what is a team that can contend for the Champions League. I know it's a lot to throw at you already, but uh, that's Serrano Kuman's story in a nutshell. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually agree. And I think it, it's funny you use the roller coaster analogy about Kuman because I, I was just writing, writing about the situation recently enough. And I was saying Kuman's career as a manager, there's a lot of sort of hills and inclines and declines, <laughs> but rarely do you get to a summit with Kuman. Rarely do, does he win anything. I mean, he's won the Copa del Rey and he's won things quite a few years ago, I think, with Benfica and Ajax. Yep. But like, yeah, where is the limit with Kuman? Where is his sort of upper echelon as a manager? And it's not with Guardiola and it's not with Klopp. It's not with the sort of managers that people look to and say, yeah, that's what I want for my club as one of the big clubs trying to win things. And so I think, as you say, although Kuman has done a good job this season, perhaps he is limited by his own, whether that be personality or sort of coaching personality, so to speak. He's limited by that. And I think if you want to go beyond a certain level, then maybe you do need to change managers. And so I, I feel it's harsh. I feel it's harsh on Kuman because yeah. of when, when he came in, what he's done, he's done a good job. He's done what's been asked of him and more. But ultimately, I think if you go into the next season with Kuman, there will be many people who won't be convinced by him. And I think those people include Laporta. And as soon as you hit a bad run of results, the question will be raised again and then ultimately we'll find ourselves in another year where we sort of drift to the end of the season without any real certainty about what's going on and where the future is for Barcelona. Yeah, and I think regardless of how much trust there is in Koeman, the decision on whether or not he's the manager all of next season, I think that's now the problem. We've seen Koeman didn't get a transfer window. Kike Setien didn't get a transfer window. I don't know how much he would have done one well with one anyway. But yes, Kike Setien didn't get a transfer window. And 
and Valverde for the transfer windows he get, there was, it seems like those weren't really up to him. And this goes back to the former, the, the Bartomeu regime that Griezmann certainly was not a player that Valverde was probably asking for. Same thing with Coutinho. These were players that the club and marketing and the, the demands of global football and trying to be a business more than a club, that's, that's where those kind of transfers come into play. And obviously it all, it, the first domino, the first catalyst was obviously Neymar leaving. And still, Barcelona now four years later, that story has, I, I, it, I'd love to finally put a nail in the coffin of that Neymar story. But you, find, you, you follow the winding road from Neymar leaving to the players that were brought in and how that money was spent to what happened with those players, to Valverde being in charge, to the Bartomeu and the vote of no confidence, and then the return of Laporta and Kuman coming in. We, we've yet to kind of finish that story of that, that rolling road where I, I, I think the only way to fill, finish that story is with a Champions League trophy. And if in the offseason, if Laporta doesn't think that if you can't visualize Kuman being the manager to shake the hand of those in UEFA, and it's, it would, yeah, there is an irony of thinking about a Barcelona manager shaking the hands of those in UEFA, but <laughs> that's a different, that's another conversation that I, I say it in jest, but there's a seriousness to that. And yeah, so if you can't visualize Kuman shaking the hands of those UEFA, UEFA officials, then this should be the time to let him go. You don't wait for him to get those bad results that you expect to happen, right? So if you expect those bad results to happen, and then it'll be time to, to replace him, don't do that. <laughs> don't give him an offseason. Don't bring in Memphis Depay and Wijnaldum and whatever players that Kuman is asking for just to let him go in October or November because you're only going to give him six matches of a leash when the new season starts. And that, that's my hope. And I think Laporta has been... As, as a president, has proven that he is brave enough to make those difficult decisions before they come back to bite him. Uh, and if they do come back to bite him, he's always had the charisma and the ability to almost sidestep some of that. And so I think there is, if this was still previous regimes or previous presidents, I would be a little more fearful. fearful. But I think Laporta, uh, even in some of the things he said and done so far, has indicated that he's willing to be the bad guy, if you will, because he knows that no one's ever going to see him as the bad guy because of what he's already done. does have a shield around him. He does have an impenetrable, uh, penetrable, this is where I've succeeded before and you have to trust me again. Yeah, 100%. And you said about sort of making those brave decisions. Frank Reichardt, who started off this, well, I say era, it's probably ended and starting again in the future, but Frank Reichardt started off Barcelona as we know it today in a sense that they wouldn't be in a position they were and that was a hugely brave appointment. He got mm-hmm. Sparta Rotterdam relegated in the Dutch league. And imagine, I, I can't even yeah. imagine what Twitter would look like these days if, <laughs> if they were to appoint a similar sort of manager at this at this time. And yeah, he w- he'll take those brave decisions. I, I have complete faith in him to do that. I will caveat everything we've just said with the fact that I think if Ansu Fati is fit the entire season, I think they have a very good chance of winning in this league. And I think that he'd probably be keeping his job in the in the future, in the summer. Those are interesting things. The what ifs to ponder, doors to open. But yeah, the season is not over yet. There's two, still two matches left. One of the most important ones, though, is the third match, if you will, for Barca Femini. And Barca B, we haven't had a chance to talk about them. They're in the promotion playoffs now. So they are starting their first promotion playoff this weekend uh, against Murcia. Not the big Murcia, but a second Murcia side. Uh, it's an academy side. But nonetheless, Barca B, they are just three matches away from promotion, the same place they were in when they were in the final last year. So Barca B even playing well. Garcia Pimienta, if Barca B get promoted, uh, of course, people are throwing his hat in the ring. And I think for good reason. 
He's a fantastic manager. He has that, that locker room of, yes, young players, but he has the trust of that locker room. He plays just a fantastic system. His tactics have been correct. He wins and wins and wins and wins in the third division. So uh, whether it's at Barcelona or not, Garcia Pimienta deserves some kind of promotion somewhere. That cannot be said. And, and if it is just Barca beginning promoted to the second division, then well, maybe Garcia Pimienta is the second division manager and we'll see how he does there. But yeah, I, that's a, certainly another figure to think about and consider. But yes, the Barca Femini against Chelsea. We're going to have another podcast this week, so look out for that. But uh, for now, I want to thank Wordy for joining the show. I, I think he's a future star in this corner of the universe, of his corner of the internet and all of the Liga. It's not just Barcelona that he's an expert in. So uh, Wordy, where can people find more of your work? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ruri Barlow, which is R-U-R-I-B-A-R-L-O-W. And uh, much of my work does appear on La Liga Lowdown, as you mentioned. But uh, I have to say thank you very much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure and appeared on such a well-respected sort of authority on Barcelona as the Barcelona podcast is. Um, yes, yeah, great, great pleasure for me. I know someday I'll stop laughing at well-respected someday. But uh, yeah, we try, we try, we try, we try. We try. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at the Barcelona pod on Hilton uh, at Hilton D13 for me on Twitter, our closed Facebook group, the Barcelona podcast. If you're feeling disappointed and want people to, uh, respectively lament some of those feelings that's the barcelona podcast closed facebook group answer the questions we'll let you in and on patreon that's how you kind of get to me personally i do respond obviously to the patreons and you can also find these shows without the ads over there and it's also a little incentive to support the show financially so we're on youtube as you know with the match reviews the barcelona podcast and i've got some fun stuff planned for the summer months as well some of those big questions that we want to ask and uh, i get to delve deep into some of the academy players as well so that is the barcelona podcast on youtube so thanks so much for listening to the show until next time we'll Talk to you soon in Forza Barca. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.